everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney, over there Steve. Wicked. Wicked. And today we are continuing our discussion of Wicked Weird, an anthology of New England horror writers. It's Wicked Weird. Wicked Weird. Uh, edited by Amber Fallon, Scott T. Godsword, and Daniel P- or David Price. I don't think you pronounced that one right. Again. Again, well. <laughs> it's recycling the jokes from last time. Add it to the TV <laughs> tropes page. <laughs> they have one joke. <laughs> oh, I think we have at least two jokes, but. Oh, shit. Oh, and they're sitting right here. Oh, the hosts are the jokes. The biggest jokes on this show are the hosts. All right, so. This is part three of our look at Wicked Weird. 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 I don't know. I don't I don't have that accent down. I'm not a mass Weird. hole. I am. So, uh, yep, yeah, this is the second half of the book. And I will say that uh, there's there's been three or four anthologies in our in our back catalog where the second half is generally more impressive than the first. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, you know, well, it's, it's an anthology and like, like a collection or any mixed group of stories, you can read it in any order. True that. It's but, kind of, Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Please do go on. <laughs> I was just going to say that, um, you know, people's tastes are people's tastes. And that's that's just, you know, you can't change that. Right. So, you know, something that, that speaks to me might not have the same resonance with you. Right. So, you know, yeah, and, and I fully agree that the second the second half of this um is is uh more interesting than the first half. Right. You know, I, I just wonder if that's just, you know, statistical anomaly when adding our taste to it, or if it's, you know, some reason for the ordering of the stories. Yeah, I, I would guess that you would want to, you know, start off with the, with the, uh, I won't say weaker, but with the, uh, you know, the iffier material, the stuff that maybe you wanted to put in, maybe you didn't, and then finish on the strong stuff. You know, because I, you know, if I'm going to sit down and read an anthology, I'm going to read it in order. That, you know, maybe it's because that's how I'm wired. Unless I'm just, like, looking for a particular story from that anthology, mm-hmm. but I'm just going to read it in order. Right. You know. I don't randomize albums, and I guess I don't randomize short stories either. So, um, and and I think that you definitely, you know, you should always finish on with your stronger pieces. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think uh, I think you should lead off with strong pieces, and I think you should end with strong pieces, and you know, kind of mix it up toward the middle there. And, and length, because these pieces toward the second half are definitely longer than some of the pieces in the in the first half. I noticed that um, 
that in a lot of anthologies, the longer pieces get put near the end as well. Right. And, and it's funny because one of the main criticisms that we had for some of the stories in the first half were they weren't long enough. Right, right. That they could have benefited from, from being a little bit longer. So, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's your correlation. Uh, possible, possible. I have no idea. You know, the editors, there's three of them. Uh, and, and, and whatever mechanic was used to order the stories is unknown to me. And, yeah. you know, we could assume all day long, but you know what happens That's when true. you assume. That's true. And I can't, I can't really see, uh, you know, a trifecta of editors having an easy time of ordering stuff. Because, you know, that's three, three of those opinions, mm-hmm. you know, and compromise. <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm just imagining the slush pile for this book if there was one, <laughs> you know, and and it's like okay, so everybody puts their babies together, you know, everybody puts their definites in a stack, put your rejections in a stack, put your maybes in a stack, and then we'll all go back through each stack. And yeah, I, mean, I, I imagine it's got to be it's got to be tough and a lot of compromise and a lot yeah. of. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of bargaining. Yeah, well, that's probably. definitely something you've got to take into account too. Is just you know, imagine the difficulty that you have as a human being making decisions, and then the difficulty of doing it with somebody else, aka us together, and then throw a third person who has decision making abilities into the mix, and you know, I'm surprised shit got done. Right. Right. Who knows? Who knows? It's a mystery. And, you know, and really at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter. It's more of a more of a curiosity. I suppose. No, that's true. That That's definitely true. Because, um, and, you know, like a, you pulled it off. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so. Let's jump right into it. The second half of the book. Begins with a booty call. By Wick. That's right. Uh, this is better, better Late Than Never by Wicker Stone. Or in Bostonese. Wicker Stone. <laughs> um, now, we talk about this a lot. And, and I've noticed that in a couple of these stories, this one in particular, uh, it's people say that it's it's hard to write the weird tale or horror in a more modern setting because we have this like information age and communication is instantaneous yeah well we have cell phones right we have cell phones and stuff like that um but have you ever noticed that when you're playing modern call of cthulhu how soon your cell phones cease to work uh I haven't really played it that often. And not having a cell phone personally, <laughs> uh, I never think of giving a character a cell phone. Yeah, so, you know, and, and people look at me like I have a second head because I don't have a cell phone. Um, you know, this weekend I was borrowing the wife's cell phone to get some things done. And, and it worked out all right. I can see their usefulness in most situations. 
like waiting in line. That's one of the, the best. Uh, waiting in line or, or just meeting somebody for a sandwich? Or driving down a dark highway. Right. For some action. But in this case, the dark highway and the cell phone don't work. Oh, the dark highway kind of worked. Now, now you do have a cell phone. and I do. Now, I had one like 20 years ago for my job that took me through uh, various places in rural Louisiana. And... You know, I don't remember losing signal down there. It, it, even even in the midst of nowhere, it just it was rare to drop the signal completely. Um, yeah, but that was twenty years ago, and that was just a voice signal, right? Now you have like four G or whatever the new one's going to be. Um, you know, but, and but also twenty years ago. The cell phone wasn't as as uh, ubiquitous as it is today. That's true. They were near the amount of towers. Um, so you know, does does signal still drop? I'm asking you, as someone who uses a phone as part of their job. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's uh places where my my uh company that provides my service does not have a strong signal. Because not only do you have cell phone towers, but you have proprietary cell phone towers. Right. You do. So yes, uh, signals drop. Uh, you know, it depends on your carrier. Um, it's going to be um, in like valleys. It's where the you know where the radio waves can't dip down, or the cell waves, whatever. The electromagnetic radiation emanated from the towers. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the resonator master. Um, I've developed a device that bends electromagnetic waves from radio towers. Uh, you're going to have places where they just, it's just, there's no towers. They ain't happening. And this is one such place. Um, parking now, garages. Parking garages. <laughs> okay. Big concrete structures that I that I can understand. Um, so those electromagnetic waves, right? The bomb-proof, you know, radiation-proof buildings and stuff like that. You know, government buildings in D.C. built to withstand atomic blasts, so the bureaucracy that's, still that's runs. Tells you. Well, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you, cell phone signals don't get out. <laughs> um, now. One of my particular favorite kinds of of uh, story or horror story or whatever weird tale, whatever you want to call it, it takes place on on the road. Uh, you know, the Phantom Hitchhiker, uh, ghost cars, things like that. Love those stories. Eagle songs. No. That was me. Firing an imaginary gun at an imaginary eagle. He was shooting me. Because I mentioned Hotel California. That's right. But this story captures that kind of vibe. You know, long, lonesome highway out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Our protagonist on a booty call that goes out in the middle of nowhere. 
um, stops to help a stranded driver uh, in a vehicle that they realize is far older. 40 years out of date. Right. Than it should be. And then our protagonist meets with an unfortunate accident. And and the story goes on from there, dealing with uh, them having this accident, trying to recoup and get on their way, and, and ending up in the same basic predicament. Right. And, and yeah, it, it turned out really interesting. There's a lot of uh, vagueness to the to the story, to the climax and the ending of the story. Yeah, it was a, it was a um, it was a creepy story. I liked how um, the author ended up isolating the protagonist, um, you know, in, in not just like being on the highway, but having like, you know, well, I guess it's been spoiled. The cell phone didn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, well, and, I mean, that's a, that's a trope that, you know, you kind of have to discuss because, you know, that's something that comes up a lot is how to get rid of your cell phone, how to get rid of a cell phone. Comes right, up but, in I mean, gaming, was, it comes up in writing I mean, fiction in the modern time. Pretty easy. It was, you know, um, the battery discharged. Mm-hmm. Yep. It lost power. You know what would co- help? You know what would cause a battery to just discharge like that electromagnetic radiation electromagnetic pulse yes slower <laughs> <laughs> so, of the emp yeah but i don't think there was an emp in this particular no, situation no it, it wasn't it was it was a nice uh touch to add to the mystery and the creepiness of setting as well as further isolate the protagonist. Right. It, it Yes, it was really well done. Um, it was kind of quick and to the point, most of the story being build up to this encounter. And yeah, I, I thought it worked out really well. And it was a good, good way to lead off the second half. All right. So you got a, you got a guy on base. Mm hmm. All right. Now, the next one up is Starry Night by (laughs) Jason Parent. I like this story. You like this story? I really like this story. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost, almost black comedy. Just because of the one character who is Merle Haggard. I forget what the last name is. I just remember Merle Haggard. And all while I'm reading this story, I'm 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 hearing in my head, she's a good-hearted woman in love with a good-timing man. Merle Haggard Forsyth. Merle Haggard Forsyth. Uh, even I'm named after one of the greatest country singers ever to live. I think because one of my own personal uh, fears is uh, the hillbilly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that. The, the way that whole um, this whole situation was treated, not completely tongue in cheek, but just enough to uh, throw you off the scent. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really well done. I liked it a lot. Um, 
And, and, you know, personally, like, rural horror scares the piss out of me because I just don't like it. Mm -hmm. I just don't like being in the backwoods. (laughs) Right, right. I've I've said it before. I'll say it again. Um, Yeah. I can't watch Deliverance. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose I'm a little bit different in that respect that it doesn't really bother me, but it's like, I read these stories and I'm like, I know some of these people. (laughs) Yeah. The sad thing is I do too. I think I've, I think I've met Merle Haggard Forsyth at some point. You probably pass him on the highway coming back home from Ocean City today. Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, might have bought gas from him on the way back. <laughs> but yeah, this character, this character. Okay, so the basic premise of the story is a cop from a, one of the local municipalities, like probably a small town itself, is responding to this this call from out in the sticks and the cop's not even sure if he's supposed to be going to this call because they don't even know if this area is in their jurisdiction. Right. But you know, he's a decent cop. So he decides to check it out anyway. Something might be hurt. Somebody or something, you know, something might be happening and it picks up kind of like as the, as the uh, call, the cops already there. He's already, like investigating the scene and you get Merle Haggard Forsyth, who is the most unflappable redneck there ever was. Yeah. He's definitely got that, uh, hillbilly calm to him. Yep. Well, I, I, you know, tell me about the blood. Well, that's, that's the dog's blood and maybe some, uh, other character. And, uh, but mostly the dog Leonard, Leonard, probably some of that's Leonard. Oh, Lester, I'm sorry, Lester. Lester's, Lester's blood, uh, but it's mostly the dogs. And the cops like, how can a dog bleed this much? I don't know. Like I said, it is probably the tentacles. <laughs> it's probably the tentacles or whatever. You know, he bit Lester, and Lester was bleeding all over the place. But I thought you said this was mostly. Oh yeah, it's mostly the dogs' blood. <laughs> And, and and it becomes this like convoluted police statement, and the cop is eventually just like, you know what, fuck it. Right. <laughs> I'm calling animal. Control. Okay, I'm calling. I'm calling animal control. I'm calling an ambulance. Uh, you know, send more cops. Yeah, it's uh, funny as shit because that's the first thing I thought of. It's like a little bit of a riff on uh on Return of the Living Dead. And we get kind of uh, a sequence with when, once the paramedics and the animal control gets here and we get all of our government employees, all of our uh, so-called protectors of civilized society together in a spot. And it turns into a pretty effective riff on Predator. Yeah, um, I like that it was nice action horror. You don't get a lot of uh, good action. Well, yeah, you don't get you don't get a lot of good uh, action scenes in horror. 
Uh, a lot of people like to build up the atmosphere. Some people, you know, just like uh, do the um, like the, the kill scenes and stuff oh, like yeah. that. The window, the window, the eye, three lobed eye burning through my brain. Uh, you know, <laughs> but not a lot of folks do action and chase scenes in particular are very hard to write because there's a certain kind of uh, tension that has to be going along with this frenetic pace of a chase. And, and this story does really well with being able to balance the, the tension and is able to just the action scene itself is almost written in a three act structure uh, where you have, this part of the action scene and then you get a pause and then this part of the action scene and it's very frenetic and then you get a little bit of a pause and then you get the big reveal and go from there and the shit hits the fan right shit hits the fan and then shit hits the fan again and the shit hits the fan again it's almost you know it's got that kind of pulp action flavor condensed into just a small fraction of the story um, but, you know, it, like I said, if you like that kind of quirkiness to it, it has that as well. Uh, very um, almost Tremors like, if you remember yeah. that film. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Star Creek. Mm-hmm. But Star that Creek. Just, just might be the hillbilly ish parts right. of it. Right. You know, I would say Tucker and Dale, but, you know, the, the comparison to that is just like overwrought but yeah kind of kind of a star creek angle to it um and and it is kind of more on the on the humorous side like a dark humor yeah it's it's definitely got a gallows humor to it right and and that's another thing that you don't get a lot in in weird fiction and horror is you don't really get that kind of tongue-in-cheek humorous vibe to it yeah, because usually if you go for that, it gets really wacky really quickly. Right, right. And and it, it it gets too wacky, which overshadows the horror. And this was a nice balance between, um, you know, horror, action, and a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Because, well, mainly because the sense of humor was really low-key. It was kind of, um, you know... It was very dry it, sort of humor. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't overt. It was, um, it was really, it was straight man humor. You mm-hmm. know, without without a, uh, you know, some of the playoff. Right. Uh, right. Well, Waylon Jennings Forsyth would be perfect as played by Bill Murray. Yeah. To, to give you the kind of character that we're envisioning this as is. Or as a, Lucas or uh, Bud Abbott. Bud Abbott, something like that. But I would say somebody who plays more characters. It's more like. Um, uh, the the groundskeeper from Caddyshack in a horror. Yeah, right. Cinderella story. Last hole of the masters. That that kind of vibe, and that's and that's one of the things that really kind of sets the story in motion because you really don't know what to expect after after that particular sequence, and we're focusing a lot on the opening. Because the opening of this story really set up for what happened next and kind of the effectiveness of what happened next. Right. Because, you know, there are a lot of giveaways in in 
Forsyth statement to to the officer and you know and you, and you get it's it's kind of an interesting uh spin on the unreliable narrator as well as that you know we're getting this from the officer's point of view who is supposed to be objective and very Joe Friday sort of thing you know just the facts and then but you he's, have, de- he's dealing with someone who is right. purposefully incapable of saying just the facts right who would be an unreliable narrator if the if the script were flipped and we were doing it from Jennings point of view right and so yeah that was an effective turning of of the unreliable narrator trope so all in all you know one of one of the best stories in the anthology i think yes all right now Third up on our list, I am going to mangle this story. Um, Sanguasuga? Sanguasuga by Callie Moulton. 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 That's what I said. Moulton. Um, this, this was a wild kind of story. You can't mangle this story. I was going to mangle the the pronunciation of Sanguasuga. Oh. Yeah, this story was kind of a a nice little twist on, like, that urban legend kind Mm -hmm. of vibe of, you know, waking up in the bathroom with your your kidney gone kind of thing. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, It's a little bit more than your kidney, though. A little bit. Just a tad bit more than your kidney. And... Yeah, and it also kind of plays on the usual vampire tropes, and yeah, and and definitely even, well, even has, the name, even the name, right? Sanguasuga kind of like, you know, evokes sanguine, right? Which is oh, you know, all all brooding vampires are sanguine, of course, because you know it's bloodish. Hi. You know, and and so we have a corporate chill, you know, the unhappy guy that does all the work while all the uh, jock types, you know, get all the credit. And, you know, those guys are all like, yeah, get the client all fucked up, make him sign a contract. Woo. Yeah. Then we're going to go to the strip club and celebrate. And the guy that we have as our narrator is kind of the guy that did all the work and was continuing to do all the work and was planning on, instead of going to the strip club to celebrate, to take the contract back to the office and make sure everything was legit. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, but he's not enough of a, um, I guess of a, of a, just a competent person to take the credit of his work. Right. Yeah, he's he's kind of that put upon the right. corporate stooge. Yes, and so um, yeah, he he's at the bar. You know, he's watching all this shit go down. He's drinking his club soda, you know, because he's got to go back to the office and make sure everything's right. And then he is beset upon by a mysterious beauty. Yes, so so like we, hello, how are you today? 
completely overwhelmed that such a, a specimen would be talking to him. Mm-hmm. And she convinces him to engage in a a, a, a ritual of Some her weird, world. Yeah, weird drink from her homeland, which is never mentioned what it is. Yeah, her her world. She called it her world. She does say world, doesn't she? And that yep. kind of slips by him. Wait, did she just say world? That must be that must be quaint. She must be talking about Europe. She's European. Right. She's hot. She's European. I think that was the thing. She's hot. <laughs> right. She's hot. She's European. I think that goes a long way, especially if you are the one that doesn't go to the strip club. Right. Right. And he's convinced to uh, loosen up a little bit. Oh, a lot of these stories, you know, and I was thinking vampires because a lot of this, the seduction narrative of the of the vampire story often starts like that. Somebody who's mm-hmm. you know, virginal or, or not very worldly gets seduced by the dark charms of the vampire. Yes, it's very Anne Rice. Yeah, or whatever. Very, uh, she was not wearing a badass cape, however. You know why? Because Skillet bought it from her. Oh, man. She walked by the table with all the other employees like, man, that's a badass cape. I want to buy it. I want that cape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and it only gets weirder from there. It's actually how you can tell she wasn't a vampire because she was not wearing a cape. Right. Badass or otherwise. I mean, it's like a part of the vampire union. Mm. You don't wear a cape, you don't work. It's in the bylaws. But, uh, yeah, then then the narrative starts getting weird. Yeah, it gets to to this point where you you think, oh, it's a vampire. And then um, his life kind of, like, turns around. Right, it's a perfect 180. Yeah, and he's like now he's like VP of VPness at the company, and you know everybody um, you know kisses his ass, right? And he's married to this woman who's you know foxy and from Europe, and he's got <laughs> and, and, like tailored suits that fit him perfectly, right? And you know something's wrong. You just don't know what it is because you know you you were led by title and trope to think vampire. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, reality really starts to break down and it, and it leads and it just keeps going. It kind of snowballs to the, the climax where, where it could does another 180, and you're just like going, what? Yeah. It, it kind of, has echoes of one of my favorite Batman the Animated Series episodes, which when we do that show, we'll, we'll bring bring up that trope again of just how um, you have melting realities that kind of crash into each other. Mm-hmm. And really, that's that's what ends up happening is you have these these realities that just crash into each other until finally the truth is revealed and you're like, oh, shit. Right, right, and it's another, it's one of those stories that you have to go back a couple pages and reread just to make sure you caught that correctly, and you didn't actually miss something when you read it. 
the first time. Yeah. yeah. And that's always a uh, a good a good thing. All right. Next up is the Lost Mine of Saint Eloy. Uh, this one is by Edwin Buja. Buha. Buha. Yep. Sorry if or we. Or maybe it's Buya. Nah. I'll let you do that. But yeah, this one. Um, yeah, this one by Cyborg. <laughs> You have said it 86% of the required time to make it a catchphrase. Uh, yeah, this one is, is one of those almost kind of found footage sort of thing. There's a narrative within the narrative, um, which is always interesting to see. Uh, this one's the little more straightforward version of it. You have the narrator, the initial narrator, is digging through the attic and and finds like a chest of you know m- memorabilia from his grandfather's time as, as in during the war and right. finds out that oh you know he fought in war he knew he fought in world war ii he said oh you must have also you fought in world war one as well i didn't know about that i'm 102 years old that's right so it's like grandpa tell me a story and the narration flips to the grandfather's point of view. And, and you get, when I wore a younger man's clothes, it was back in the year of 19 and 1916. And we were, we were digging tunnels. Under I lied about my age. <laughs> right. Uh, we were digging tunnels under the, under the Hun lines uh, to blow them up. Uh, you know, an actual thing that occurred during the First World War. And so, and we get this like pretty basic cosmic horror type story. It is. It's, it's, it, but we get it in the in the in the claustrophobic confines of one of these mine tunnels. Yes, it's very, um, very reminiscent of like old like um, things like uh, the Hound mm-hmm. or um, the Temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's that Robert E. Howard story where they find the they find like a temple in the desert? It's like a it's you know one of the uh, God damn it! You'll and remember it because you're like it, Robert e. it's Howard. one of his like Orient, Oriental adventures stories. That's yeah, gonna bug me. Yeah. Anyway, but it's like that kind of story. Mm-hmm. Very, very claustrophobic, very, uh, you know, you have a cast, so you have the military, you know, decorum and chain of command and, and that sort of thing. And that creates kind of a conflict. And then you have the fact that, you know, the whole action of the story starts when they're digging a tunnel and they hear the Germans digging right above them. Like so close, you can hear it through the clay. And, and that right there is like. First off, a scary thing because the enemy is digging towards you, you're digging toward them, and nobody's aware that you're there. You're the other side's there. Or don't know if either side is aware. Yeah. So, you know, you get a lot of scenes that are, you know, explained as being uh, 
dialogued with hand signals and and really soft and hoarse whispers. And then you get this this horror element of uh you know a lost thing that should not be there. The and blood then, of Belthazar. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I looked it up. No. <laughs> um yeah, well, it really evokes um that claustrophobia and you almost feel like you're there with them in the mind. Mm-hmm. Um and, and it's not particularly detailed. Right. Um you know, and it's not like overblown or 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 you know, really like verbose. Uh uh Buha just drops the right phrase at the right time. Mm-hmm. writing about it's really effective because your mind just fills in the rest yep yeah and you just get this like vivid picture of these guys huddling down in this in this hole uh muddy dirty tired and and probably you know your back's cramping your knees are cramping you know you're just like your muscles are stiff from the digging and the crouching and it's it's cold and and wet and you're just like it's a horrible and situation and then there's jerry and then there's jerry right just like through this little wall of dirt one of you could break through easily and, and you know all you've got and all you have down there is maybe you have a pistol but most everybody's just got like a shovel or a pickaxe or, or if you're lucky, you've got some of the explosives that you were going to lay, and you're just yeah, going to kill everybody. But they they specifically say that they don't carry that stuff because mm-hmm. of the gas. Right. So you really don't have – you're not armed with anything but, like, shoveling equipment. But even then, it says they didn't really carry any because they did, like, some weird thing where they dug with their feet. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That allowed three men to do the work of an entire like German squad. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how like how accurate that is, or if that's something made up for the story or not. But it definitely puts them like basically naked in this tunnel, trapped with the enemy. Right. Right. So, just a really good good job of ratcheting up the tension. Right, and then and weird shit just starts happening from there. Yeah. And and even that, the tension just keeps, like, ratcheting and ratcheting and ratcheting and ratcheting uh, until it breaks, really. See, and that that's, like, when you have, like, a really good story. Like, like um, oh, what was the one we read in uh, in Ken's uh, book where, where they were in the submarine? Mm-hmm. being chased by Dagon yeah. where you have like tension within you know the, the environment mm-hmm. just ramping up and then on top of that you have like some weird mythos shit <laughs> happening as well or yeah. happening yeah so I mean it's really cool because you know you get it all <laughs> right right you definitely definitely get a little bit of everything in this one um, okay, and last up for this episode is It's a Long Walk to the Ocean by 
K.H. Vaughn. Sure, it's not Vaughn. Man, you are going to wear that joke into the ground, aren't you? I am. It's our only joke. It's Threadbare. <laughs> it's the only joke. It's Threadbare. It's the only one I know. It's, a, it's as comfortable as a it up here. shoe. That's how we pronounce it up here, Boston. Vaughn. Vaughn? Yep. Wicked Vaughn. Wicked Vaughn. Yeah, I think there was a there there's a beer made up that way called that. There probably is. So do you remember did you ever read martial law? Uh no. Okay. Uh so you don't know about martial law's take on um or Pat Mills his take on um the human torch? Uh no. <laughs> He's constantly on fire, can't put himself out, and is constantly feeling the pain from being mm-hmm. on fire. Right. That is his story. Yep. Uh, looking at my notes, the first thing I wrote is, everything's burning! <laughs> and Which is literally true in the case of this story. Everything yep. is burning. And people. Nobody knows why. Well, it's actually it's the people who are burning, but because they are constantly burning, everything they interact with starts to burn. Right. And just think about the things you interact with, which is right. pretty much everything. Right. Your built, your houses, your cars, your phones, chairs, everything starts. Everything starts catching fire because all the people are burning. No one knows why. No one really cares. Well, and that. It- that is one pain. of the interesting things about the story. <laughs> they're in pain. That's Nobody funny. cares. You know, every once in a while, it's just passing, uh, you know, references. You know, well, why Why the fuck are we burning? Yeah, don't worry about it, man. Just go with it. Yeah, that's you know? very, even though it takes place in Texas, mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a, a New England attitude about it. Why the fuck are we burning? Who cares? We're fucking burning. Right. Almost kind of a Merle Haggard Forsyth. Ah, well, sometimes you just burn like this and nobody knows why, nobody cares. You just kinda just kinda roll with the punches and you gotta do it. And so we're treated to almost kind of a, a road trip movie or a road trip story while everybody's burning. Uh two brothers they kind of estranged from each other. Meet up. They get back together because everything's bur- everyone is burning, and they decide to go down. They got back together because their dad died, and mm-hmm. the brother who left came back for the funeral, and then everybody started burning. Right. And they said, "You know what? We need to go to the ocean." Yeah, and and the thing is that when somebody who's burning encounters water, um, it's it doesn't put them out. It like destroys them they kind of like melt into ash right the their skin and everything melts into ash and their bones just fall out and there you have it but uh yeah it's kind of a, a, a strange kind of story well the, the story the 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 action of the story i think was kind of almost pointless mm-hmm. um but the it did explore the relationship between the two brothers. Mm-hmm. 
And it was almost like, you know, their excuses and their, I guess, just like their um, hostility was Mm -hmm. burning away along with um, themselves. Right. (laughs) Until, you know, they get to the ocean, they get to the end. And, um, you know, they, they, they've exhausted, um, their relationship as well, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of consumed. More or less, more or less. It's it's kind of like a, yeah, it's a, it's a metaphorical kind of a story, allegorical. I don't know which one, you know, the allegory and you get, it gets burned away just like your, you know, the uh, tensions between the brothers. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and it has a bittersweet kind of ending to it. Yeah, because everyone's burning. Well, I mean, the the main narrative of the story between yes, the I two know. brothers has. Right. But well, that's what I'm saying, that, that, you know, along with, you know, themselves constantly burning, you know, the, their relationship is also burning. Uh, being not burned away, but like uh, almost smelted in a way, or or tempered. There you go, tempered. And and yeah, that that's a that's a good good way to look at it. Is that they're they're being tempered by you know their relationship, their bond is actually strengthens over the course of the story. So it is, you know, a a brotherly love forged in fire. Yeah, to make to be, a many folded sword that will cut through a tank. <laughs> there we go. There's our second joke. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it, it worked. It was really strange, um, and, and kind of unsettling at the same time because you know the conversations between the brothers were really very normal, I guess. For, yeah, for but they were switch. kind of, they were, they were normal, but they were like the yeah. things that, that they probably would not be talking about. Right. You know, it was they were just of, sitting like, around having a beer. Right. They were, they were doing this because one, you know, it's kind of seems to be kind of the end of the world sort of situation. So they're, they're doing it. And also the reminiscing and the, the bonding experiences, you know, are taking their minds off the fact that they're in this just constant fucking fire. <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny. It shouldn't happen to anyone. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's that that's the third quarter of the book right there, and and what that's, a strange place to end it. Yeah, that story actually may be um, the my personal best um what what is it called uh what's the wacky weird fiction shit that um that people do the um like hate from the sky was one bizarro bizarro thank you like your favorite bizarro story yes me am hate this story <laughs> Come on, now, not everybody knows Bizarro, I don't think. Oh, come on, everybody knows who Bizarro is. Uh, maybe, maybe. All right, so that wraps it up for this episode. 
Uh, join us again next time when we go over the final five stories. And keep 30 lucky. Absolutely.